Good evening, church. Uh, to honor the reading of God's word, will you just please remain standing? This is Revelation chapter 2, starting verse 8. It says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Go ahead and, go ahead and have a seat. As, as Mike shared earlier, it, it is my, my privilege today is to be able to share about the Church of Smyrna. We are continuing our, our, our series on the seven church of the book of Revelation. And just like he said, we're not getting into all the prophecy and all these things, but what we are getting into is the teaching that Jesus himself taught and spoke to these seven churches of, of the time that the Apostle John was alive. And what we love about this series and what we love about these letters to these churches is that in many ways, these churches represent modern churches even today. We're going to see, like we saw last week, where Christ, he says, hey, good job, you're doing this. But then we will also see in these, these letters where Christ is calling churches to repent, where churches are, or Christ is calling churches to take a look at where they are falling short, to shore some things up, and to remember Christ. Tonight, I get to talk about the second church, and this church is the church of Smyrna. And the one thing that you're going to see is as we look at this church is that this is a church that has gathered around the gospel, that the gospel is the permeation of their entire being, that they are so much about Christ and the gospel that they are being persecuted. They are being challenged. They, people are being thrown in prison. Some may face death. You know, to be honest with you, when, when I first started reading through this passage, when I first started preparing for this, I was like, this is a bummer. But the truth is, you're going to, and I hope you will see the encouragement that's actually in this passage. Because in many ways, in many ways, as we look at these few verses, this answers the question, what is Christ thinking when his people suffer? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered, like, struggled in your life? And have you ever thought about Christ? I know you see my situation. What is on your heart and your mind? Do you see my suffering? What would he have to say about these things? And this letter, this, these few verses that we will see to the church of Smyrna will answer that question. And the challenging part is that we will see that the main idea of this entire passage is that Christ sympathetically commands faithfulness in the face of struggle. Christ commands faithfulness in the face of struggle. Now, before I go 
any further, let's just take a moment. Let's, let's pray and give this time over to the Lord. Father God, I, I thank you for this passage. Father, I thank you for the time that we have to come together and to gather around your word. Father, I pray today that as we, as we come together, Lord, that this would truly be your message, that you would be glorified, that you would speak to our hearts. Lord, meet us wherever we are at. And Lord, if we are struggling now, Father, I pray that you would whisper encouragement to us. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears. In your name I pray, amen. We're just going to go through this verse by verse, and we're going to look at Revelation verse, or chapter 2, verse 8, where it says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. At this point, we're going to look at, we're going to look at the authority of the one who commands. Let us take a moment to look at the authority of the one who commands. Because just last week, Pastor Mike, he already worked through what it means for the angels to be there. But we're going to look at right now, when Christ identifies himself, he uses two phrases. And the first phrase being the words of the first and the last. This is Christ speaking to his eternal nature. As a matter of fact, this isn't the only time Christ refers to himself. In Revelations, just before, just before John starts to write these letters for Christ, when Christ reveals himself to John, he says in John chapter 1, verse 17, it says, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Let's take a moment to consider what's being said here. Because oftentimes, especially in our culture today, when we think about Jesus, we think about Jesus, the humble servant who came, as, who came in the manger, who, who hung out with children, who died on the cross for us. And that is Christ. But right now, what you need to see that this is Christ post-resurrection. This is Jesus who said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus coming back on a horse, judging people, and like bringing back wrath, who's bringing judgment. This is Christ, who is our glorified Savior. And it is by this authority, by this recognition, that he will go on to talk to this church in Smyrna. This is not just the meek, humble Jesus, but the authoritative, glorified Christ who speaks now. But the passage continues to go on. And so though we see Christ's commands with eternal authority, we see also that Christ. He connects with a sympathetic heart. Christ connects with a sympathetic heart. For the title that he uses afterwards says, He is the one who died and came to life. I want you to notice that as we study these seven churches, that Jesus, 
When he identifies himself to all the churches that he's going to write to, he, he tailors his greeting, he tailors his, his description of himself to meet a need, to, to connect personally with each church. And it is in this being that though, because this church is suffering, though this, because this church is facing persecution, he's reminded that he also, that he knows what it's like to be persecuted. And persecuted to the point of death. Hebrews chapter 4, the author writes to us in verse 15, says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Christ is sympathetic. Christ knows your struggle, that he himself faced your struggle. So if you are struggling now in in your, your marriages, if you're struggling now in your finances, if you're struggling now to have courage to stand for Christ, if you are struggling to do the right thing, if you're struggling with lies and deception, guess what? Christ knows what it's like to be tempted by those things. He knows the burden that is on your heart, and he is sympathetic to you. But not only does he know those things, he is without sin. He knows the path forward. This, this is the Christ who is speaking to us now. And let me share with you why this is so important. Because oftentimes, though human beings like to pride themselves in being logical, we are very emotional people. That we look for the opportunities to connect with people, even though they may not have the credentials to be able to lead us. We look for people who are kind of like us, and we say, I I, I need to follow what they're doing, because I just connect. I see their story. You know, five years ago, five years ago, I I had the opportunity to to join a gym, and I, I lost 65 pounds within like that first year. It was a trip. And it was through that and through some relationships I had, I started to intern as a coach, and then I became a coach. And it was such a crazy situation where, I, though I, I was just now learning these things, I had so many people at, within our gym would come to me for requests for help to how to lose weight, how to get healthier, how to do these things. And I felt like I, I, I don't have the information. I just did what I was told. And I did these things, and yet the owner of our, our gym, our CrossFit gym, as, as she saw that, she took me on. She taught me things because she went to school. She had the credibility, and I just had the experience of dropping so much weight. You see, human nature, they looked at her and they said, you know what, she has the knowledge, but Andrew, I can identify with Andrew because he knows my struggle. He knows what it's like to be tempted by Sweet, sweet sugar, Brighton, bringing in cookies today. (laughs) Because I was able to identify those things, people looked to me, but you know what? That's what Christ did for us. Christ isn't some ethereal tyrant God out there who just decrees the things that he decrees without understanding the struggle that we have to obey those things. Christ is sympathetic. Christ has the credibility and the authority because he is the risen one. But you need to see, and I hope and I pray that you see, that in this verse that 
God, when he commands us, he's not doing so in a way that doesn't understand your situation. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, we'll, we'll look, Christ knows. See, we're going to go on then to, to the reason for the command to be faithful. We're going to look at the reason to command. Verse 9 says, I know your tribulation. Let that sink in for a second. Christ, authoritative and sympathetic, says these words. I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. For this passage, this, this one verse to make sense, you really got to understand what's happening historically. The church of Smyrna at this time, they faced great, great tribulation. They faced literal trials as they were being tried as, as traitors to the Roman government. And because they wouldn't bow down to the cultural norms and the cultural practices of many things, they were being excluded from guilds to be able to make money and all those things. So what you need to understand is that in the city of Smyrna itself, that there were two groups of people, and one group was the Roman cult, which is part of like the Roman religion. That's their state official religion. And then on the other side was a, a Roman sanctified or, or sanctioned religion. That was the Jewish religion. And neither of those things mesh really well with the gospel. And because the church of Smyrna, because they would not claim Caesar as Lord, the people who had the power would exclude the people of this church to the point where they wouldn't have employment. They wouldn't be able to make money. And there was money to be made. The city of Smyrna is a port city where e commerce and trade is what sustains, is what is the lifeblood of this. And because of their unwillingness to bow down to, to these cultural norms, Smyrna faced poverty. They couldn't make money. Not only that, that because, as we've seen in Scripture, Judaizers did not like the church. It is believed that these these Judaizers would slander and report as many people as they can, people who followed the way, who followed the gospel, just to make things as hard as they possibly, possibly could for this church. So that's what we see here. That's, that's, that's when we talk about tribulation, the persecution of this, that's what we're talking about. But let's take a moment here because Jesus... Jesus calls the Jewish people, the people who gather in that synagogue, a synagogue of Satan. And when I first read that, I was like, what is this? It's like a bunch of Jewish people coming together to praise Satan. What, what is this? Is this? Is this an occult religion? It's not. Historically, what we see is that Christ, when he says this, he is using some pretty harsh words to speak to the Jewish people in that city. 
he calls them a synagogue of Satan. And this feeds into the larger theme of the book of Revelation. You see, we, we, we joked earlier, maybe it's not a joke, but we, we said earlier that we're not going to go into the prophecy and all these things, but you know what? The illusions are there. That the book of Revelation is a spiritual book. It is a book that kind of takes a peek in the background of what is happening in our everyday lives. It is a book about spiritual battle, spiritual warfare. And what we are seeing here is that though as earnest as maybe these Jewish people were being, because they followed the lies of Satan, and as they were being kept away from the gospel, they were succumbing to those lies and oppressing this church. And by doing so, and by doing so, they were being tools of Satan. Spiritual warfare is a very real thing. And it's, we have an enemy. If you claim Christ as Lord and Savior, you have someone who's looking to destroy you. The Bible makes that clear. But let's, let's look at the parallels of what we have between today's world and what's happening here. Because we see here on one side that we have a bunch of religious people who are oppressing the gospel-oriented church. And we also have the Roman state of things that where everyone else wants to, they, 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 that this church is being called to claim Caesar as Lord. So we have religious and political strife. We have this pressure for the church of Smyrna to bow down to the culture around it. This parallels our world today so, so well. You know, in, in, in the 2000s, in, early, in the early 2000s, back when I was in high school, Back then, I was getting really like, excited about Jesus, on fire for the Lord, listening to like, Reliant K and all those cool Christian bands before the current stuff. And back then, back then, it used to be, yeah, man, all the super religious Christians, all the Pharisees in the church, we got to fight against them because they're the ones ruining it for everyone, and we can't su submit to them. And then as I've gotten older... As I've been studying the Word, and as I've been continuing to work with children and youth ministry, we have Pharisees amongst us. But you see, the religion that that's prevalent in today's world isn't a Judeo-Christian religion. Honestly, it's, it's secular humanism. Listen, George Barna. The George Bonner Group, if you're not familiar with that, this is, this is a Christian um, <clears throat> sociological group. As in, they go every year, survey a bunch of people around the world, and they put together statistics for people to, to understand how we're doing as a church. And what the Barna Group found was this. Today, today, Generation Z is the most morally conscious generation outside of the last three generations. So including Generation X, Y, and then Z. 
That what we have found through these, these sociological studies, these Christian sociological studies, that is that Gen X, what, they, what propelled them into the future was the, was the idea to find and express individuality. That's what motivated them. Generation Y, millennials, like this guy, was looking for meaning and purpose. What motivates Generation Z is morality, fairness, and justice. This is what motivates people currently in our middle school, high schools, and early college. But the issue with that is that their morality is different than the biblical sense of morality. That when they are judging what's right and what's wrong, they are doing it from a secular humanistic view. And you may be asking, Andrew, what is secular humanism? Because those are some big words. The idea here is this. Secular humanism puts people, the mob, the, like, all the people, man, as the authoritative figure, as in human beings, are the ones who defy what is right and what is wrong as long as the majority feels that way. It actually doesn't have to be the majority. It's just what they feel. The difference, true gospel-believing Christians follow Scripture as hard as it may be. And right now, the church in the United States finds itself in a conundrum. Right now, churches, if you work in youth ministry and children's ministry, what you hear is you hear these students who care so deeply about what is right and what is wrong, though it is defined differently. And churches are trying so hard to, to, to cross that gap, to make these bridges, to lead them to Christ. But in doing so, oftentimes compromises are made. So we sound like just like the rest of the world. You need to know something. You need to know something. Biblical Christianity, biblical, the gospel, that culture is no longer and possibly could be never again the cultural norm of the United States. What that means is is that everyone listening to this message, whether in this room or online, two years from now, because you found us on YouTube, <laughs> you will be tempted to bend the knee. You, you will be challenged to succumb to the world. And if you don't, things will get hard. That is what is happening to the church of Smyrna. It happened then, and it is happening now. But how did this church respond? How did the church of Smyrna respond? Well, they lived for God's approval over man's. The church of Smyrna responded to this challenge by living for God's approval over man. As a matter of fact,
As a matter of fact, what we see here is that this church takes on the same attitude as the Apostle Paul from Galatians chapter 1, when Paul writes in verse 10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant, thank you, a servant of Christ. This, this idea of living for the heavenly things, for living for the, the life that's coming after us, for living for the approval of God, this is what it means for this church to be rich. Because though we face persecutions and though we face challenges now, this life is fleeting and it will pass away. But living for the bigger picture, this church has secured for itself riches in heaven. And can we just admit right now, that is challenging. Because today we have today. And so, knowing that this is challenging, I am excited then to walk into the next verse. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, just the first part of it says this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days, you will have tribulation. And if you're paying attention, you're like, Andrew, I thought you said this is encouraging. And that's, that's going to prison. Let's, let's take a look here and see what's happening that Instead of condemnation, instead of condemning, Christ is encouraging, is what he's doing here. Because I, I think we've told you, right, that this, this series is looking at the seven churches of Revelation. And out of all seven churches, there are only two churches that Jesus writes to and doesn't have anything negative to say to that church. This, this church, the church of Smyrna, this is the first church to not receive condemnation. So this is Christ encouraging them. But you may be looking at this and thinking to yourself, this doesn't sound like encouragement, but really it sets the tone because there is no condemnation. This encouragement, this encouragement is straightforward. And one of the best ways to illustrate this, honestly, is if you've ever worked out or maybe just watched like athletes do their thing online, oftentimes they, you have coaches. And the coaches know what is possible for their athletes. Every week as I, co I coach some of the boys that come, they work out with me as we do powerlifting, as we do these different things, they are pushed to the brink. And one of the best moments that you'll ever experience if you ever decide for yourself to start squatting a lot <laughs> is this idea that as you are coming up, as you are bearing the weight, you have people cheering you on, and you, maybe you have a coach saying, come on, come on. And it sounds like a bark, but really that coach is saying, go on, you got this. Because as hard as it is, you're about to break through. And once you break through, there is only glory. Christ calls this church to not fear. And in this passage, we see so many things as he begins to encourage this church. Number one, we see that Jesus 
Jesus is aware of the plans of the enemy and is in complete control. If you face hardships and tribulations in your life, God's not surprised by that. As a matter of fact, we just got done doing a series about that very concept, right? If if you're looking for information about that, you can go on YouTube and check out our whole series on Joseph. But as we look at this, we should recognize that Christ when he sees the world, he's not surprised by it. Like if you, if you got into trouble, God's not in heaven looking at you like, oh, I didn't see that coming. He has been watching you. He has allowed that to happen in so many ways. And there's a lot of reasons as to why quote-unquote good people, we're not, but quote-unquote good people have hardships in their life. But one of the reasons why it's found here The verse itself says, Behold, the devil is about to throw you into prison that you may be tested. That you may be tested. The definition of testing in this, it means to examine or to learn the true nature of or character of. To learn the true nature or the character of. One of the questions you may have for yourself is, God knows everything. Why does he need to test me? When really in those moments, your testing isn't necessarily about you, or about for him to know. It's for you to know. It's for you to know where you need to grow. So oftentimes, oftentimes in our, in our culture, we hate the idea of being tested. We hate tests, maybe because as we grow up in school, and we took tests and we failed or we did well or whatever. Those, those things in our minds, they, they make us look really bad and we don't like that idea of being held accountable for knowing or not knowing some bit of information or not being able to, to come over it. But here's the thing. Testing is only negative if you have a fixed mindset, if you're the kind of person who says it's either this or it's that, that's it. If you have a fixed mindset, then yeah, you're going to hate testing. But guess what? Christians, if you claim Jesus as Lord and Savior, you aren't either or. I mean, you are saved, but guess what? Christ is continuously growing us through the process of sanctification, that there are moments in your life that you will be tested to know, oh, look at this. Here is an area of my life that needs to come over into the lordship of Jesus. This is where I fall flat. But it's not for you you to feel bad about that so that Jesus is like, look at that. See, you stink. No, Christ is saying, look, now that you know, turn it over to me through the power of the gospel and let us walk through this. Next month, Next month will be one year since I herniated three discs in my back. And for those of you who've been a part of the church for long enough, you know I was in a wheelchair for like a month and a half or something. It was a great time. But now as I've healed and as I'm able to stand, remember, remember those days when like I was preaching and I was just having to sit and all these things? I'm at a point now that as I go out into the gym, as I go out to get ready, I have to test myself lightly. 
to see what are my limits. Not so that I can be like, well, I give up. I guess I'm just going to be bound in a wheelchair. No, to understand where I need to grow next. Testing is only a negative thing if you have a fixed mindset. But if you are called by Christ, you're called to grow. So let's look at the command that Jesus has itself. This is the second part of verse 10, when Jesus says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. The word faithful here is the Greek word pistos, which means holding, holding to the belief that trusts. Holding to the belief that trusts. What that means is, is that as you are being tempted, as you are struggling, we, we have to be faithful is to hold on to the trust in Christ. And as we struggle, listen, there are hardships that we face that, that would bring about some pretty logical questions. Here's a couple that came to mind as I was preparing for this. If you are struggling and if you're asked, being told to hold on, you're going to ask Jesus, things like this. Number one, is Jesus worth it? You might not say that verbally because we want to be good Christians, but guess what? You're probably feeling that deep in yourself. Is Jesus worth this? The second question is, will Jesus really? Will he really reward me for standing for him? Will he really reward me? Or the last question could be, does Jesus know or even care about what's happening to me? Listen, if you struggle and you've asked these questions, at least you're engaged in the process, right? Those are some pretty good questions. Well, that last part, that last question, does Jesus know? Guess what? He answered that earlier. He does. He knows. He knows the tribulation that we go through. But the question is, is Jesus worth it? Or does, will Jesus really, will he really reward me for the struggle that I'm going through? Well, he answers that here in this verse when he says, and I will give you the crown of life. You see, the crown of life, the crown of life is the reward for a race well run. The crown of life is the reward for a race well run. And so what you need to understand here is that there are two things happening when Jesus says that he will give them the crown of life. One of my favorite things that he does is actually Jesus is affirming something that James wrote in his book, in James chapter 1, verse 12. James wrote, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, there's that nasty word again, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Christ is affirming something that James wrote. And when James wrote this, he wrote this under Roman persecution, when Christians were just dying left and right for being Christians. So we see here that there is a common theme that when there is hardship, when there's tribulations to be had, we are encouraged to stand true. 
But when we do so, we are given the crown of life. And the second thing that Jesus is doing with this illustration is that he is reminding, he's, he's giving hope, he's giving an aim to the people of Smyrna. You see, in the Roman Empire, they knew that there were races to be had. And when, when kind of like our, our Olympics, right, when people came together, they would run, they would represent different cities, and they would run these races. And those who won the race would receive a crown. And the winner of that crown would bring glory to himself and glory to the city that he represented. Guess what? The city of Smyrna was one of those cities that was represented in these races. So the people who were hearing this, they would have known Glory is to be had. The I will be crowned victorious if I hold on. So how? How do we hold on? And what I love is the Bible often uses these examples of racers and, and things like that. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3-7. through seven. He wrote this. Share in the suffering, share in the suffering as, good sol- as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlist, enlisted him. Verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. How do we run this race well then? How? Focus. Focus. The book of Revelation is a book about spiritual battles happening right now. The book of Revelation is, is a glimpse into the world where people are being distracted, taken away from the gospel ministries to take away your hope and your joy. Right now, in all of our lives, there are things competing for our attention. And if the enemy can hold us away from focusing at Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, when tribulation comes, of course we are going to struggle. Not to say that we won't struggle when we are even focused. It's hard enough as is. It says right there. It's hard work. We have to share in that suffering. But the more we are distracted from the truth, the more we are distracted from the gospel, the more we make it about religion or secular humanism or we make it about nice things and good things, we are being distracted and we are being robbed of what God is doing in our hearts. And so he right now calls us through this passage, through this message to focus on him to remember that he is Lord. And after saying these things, verse 11 says this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus issues the challenge to be faithful unto death, so that we would receive the crown of life. And in verse 11, it's almost this reaffirming thing, like, listen, I said it. 
And if you're listening, if you're paying attention, respond appropriately. Because those who do respond appropriately, it says, reaffirming the idea of the crown of life, that those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. You see, those of us who know the gospel, those of us who are called by Christ, yes, we will face a second, we will face a physical death. But the second death, the one that Christ saved us from, we will not experience because he is our hope. He is our Savior. So then the question becomes, how will you respond to this? How will you respond to Christ cheering you on in the face of struggle? Some of you in this room right now, I know, you are facing tribulation right now because of the stances that you are taking in your workplace. Right now, you, you are seen as the crazy person. You are being seen as the unreasonable person. You are being seen as someone who is bigoted or small-minded. Why? Because you don't define morality based on what the world's saying. You are defining it by, hopefully, by what the, what, what the Bible says. Not, not religious stuff, but I mean the gospel, what the gospel says. And every day, you, every day, as you are challenged by your friends, your coworkers, your loved ones, every day, you are being challenged to budge, to compromise just a little bit. I want you to know this. Jesus sees you. He sees you, and he knows your tribulation. I hope that's an encouragement. Stay, on the, stay focused. Stay on the track, because you will receive the crown of life. Now, there are others. Maybe, maybe you've just started your journey, and you're, you're, you're still on this process of learning the difference between empty religious nomenclature, right? Just empty religion versus the actual gospel, right? Because though I talked about human secularism, there's still a lot of just religion that runs rampant in churches today. And you're, you're just sorting it all out. I would encourage you to continue on your journey. Because oftentimes when I've read passages like this, I've often wondered, what, what if you fail the test? Does that mean God hates you? Well, guess what? When people fail tests, Christ died for them. He died for that. And you're still being shown grace and growth. You'll, you'll get there someday as you continue to grow in him. And I pray, pray now that you would begin to practice clinging to Jesus. I remember when I was in eighth grade, and I'm going to land this soon. <laughs> I remember in eighth grade, somewhere around then, we were talking about Columbine. You guys remember that? And there's that story. There's that story of the girl who, when the gun was pointed to her head, she was asked, do you believe in God? Do you claim Jesus? And she did, and that shooter pulled the trigger. I remember hearing that, and I was in middle school at the time, and when I was going to Sunday school, there were all these people in my Sunday school group, these teenagers who were like, yeah, I would totally do that. 
I would, if someone pointed a gun at my head, I would totally say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Pull the trigger, man. I was not one of those people. I was still growing in my faith. I was still struggling with a lot of things, trying to figure out who is this Jesus. I want to believe in Jesus. And I had given my life to Christ like five years earlier. It's a journey, is what I'm sharing right now. And if you're not there, guess what? God's just calling you closer to that. So please just know that Christ is calling you closer to truth and intimacy. Now, I, I thought maybe the last group of people who, who may be hearing this message right now may have no idea what's happening. You're like, whoa, this is a really depressing message. It would be if you don't know Jesus. I would encourage this. Right now, we've talked about the Church of Smyrna, persecution, a lot of philosophical things, a lot of theological things too. But I hope you can feel and know that the Spirit of God is calling you towards Christ. I want you to know that there is a holy and just God who has created you for a relationship with Him. But because we are rebellious, because we are arrogant, we have spat in his face. And the Bible teaches that no matter what we do, no matter what good works we think we're capable of, that will never atone for the fact that we have offended the God of the universe. But because God sees our plight and loves humanity, he sent Jesus to die on the cross for you, to satisfy the wrath of God so that you can have a relationship with him and know his grace, know his love, to know his mercy. If that's the first time you've ever heard that, I would encourage this. If you have questions, ask. Phil's back there. He's a cool guy. Say hi, Phil. Dude, that guy's giving me a lot of spiritual pep talks, you know? Because maybe you don't want to talk to a pastor because pastors are too, like, oh, holy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe, you want, maybe you want to talk to a, a holy pastor. There's Mike right over here. <laughs> but listen, if, if you've never heard the gospel before, if you've never made a profession of it, I would encourage you to speak to Phil, one of our elders, Mike, myself, maybe Stephen, I don't know. <laughs> Seriously, talk to Stephen. And as I bring this to a close, I want to challenge this last thing. The Spirit of God is whispering to you now. And no matter where you are on your journey, I hope and pray that you will respond appropriately. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have had to come and gather around it. Father, I know these are hard topics, Lord. Father, it's discouraging at times to look around the world that we live in and feel almost at a loss. But Father, you call us to be faithful. Father, strengthen us, embolden us, be our strength. And Father, even as we are tempted on a daily basis, Lord, to, to define 
right and wrong by the world standards, Lord, I pray that you would only embolden us and, Lord, that you would use us as a shining example of what it would be like if people truly followed you. Lord, bless us for your glory. Lord, speak to our hearts. In your name I pray. Amen.